Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive episode where we typically interview an analyst or an individual investor to discuss a single stock or industry. But today, we are very grateful to have on the show the CEO of RCI Hospitality, Eric Langen. We go through really the entirety of the business his own career, and how he thinks about capital allocation and really how that's changed over time. Um, for those that don't know, RCI Hospitality operates a number of nightclubs and more casual restaurants um, throughout, really throughout the whole US. Uh, but I should say before we get into this, Eric, he's the CEO. Obviously, he has a vested interest in RCI Hospitality. And keep in mind that it's not a financial advice. It's not a personal recommendation. Uh, recommendation. Um, but yeah, without further ado, this interview is a lot of fun. So here it is. Here's our interview with uh, Eric Langen. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in to J- today. We are joined by special guest Eric Langen. He is the CEO of RCI Hospitality. We've talked about RCI and the show before, so it's our pleasure to have you on, Eric. Uh, I guess before we get into the business, what's going on today? Why don't you give us some of maybe your personal history? How did you get into this to begin with? What's kind of your background? Sure. Well, I was. Uh... Married at a very young age at 19 uh, and divorced at a very young age of 19. And uh, so some friends of mine uh, started taking me to this little club, trying to cheer me up. And uh, I started dating one of the entertainers there. Uh, the, the more we got to know each other, uh, I, I didn't really like the way that uh, they were treated. She was treated. Her friends were treated. Uh, everybody always, my, I ended up having a place everybody come hang out at and you know, we stay up all night partying and then, you know, go to work the next day because uh, I worked in the evenings, too. Uh, so decided basically to open up uh, my own club uh, in 1989, sold a baseball card, or maybe the end of 88, sold my baseball card collection at the big convention in Dallas uh, that was happening that year. Took the money and rented a little small place uh, in uh, basically South Central Fort Worth, Texas, and uh uh, opened a opened a small club, and of course, her and a bunch of her friends came, started working there, and uh, just kept parlaying from there. I guess. When you were opening the first location, did you think you wanted this to be a multi-location, big operation, or did you want it to just be kind of that one spot? I think you know. I, I mean, I was twenty-one. You know, you think you know everything. Uh, I, I think. You know, we kind of thought that would be our starting point, you know, because it was a very small club. It's only 1,600 square feet. I have dressing rooms that are 8,000 square feet today. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we didn't obviously we didn't want that to be where we where we stayed forever. But, uh, uh, you know, I don't think we were very, you know, I, I, we were very naive, I would I would say. Uh, and I had a friend helping me there. And I, I, I think we were just very naive uh, on on 
on in business period, you know, uh, you think you know everything in the right age, uh, but it, you get to really quick uh, realization of what you don't know when you when you jump in the frying pan. But uh, uh, you know, we just kept at it. Uh, you know, persistence and and uh, perseverance, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, can you give us maybe some thumbnails on like RCI's history? So first location, I think you said eighty nine. What are some of the big pivotal yeah. moments since then? Well, that was my location. So RCI went public in 1995, but I started my career in 89, built up uh, uh, through 93 was probably my first big year. We had three clubs open. Uh, in 1997, uh, uh, or 1998, I'm sorry, I had a fire at one of my bigger clubs. Uh, and that's, I went public in 97 through reverse merger. Uh, and so when I had the fire, I, my attorney was my security attorney was the same security attorney that, that, uh, represented, uh, RCI at the time. And, uh, I said, look, I'm, I'm really worried. I've got, you know, a really great management team, but now I have no club for them to work in. Uh, you know, I need to put these guys to work somewhere. Uh, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, from what I understand, uh, RCI has a club in Houston, uh, that they need, they need some management staff at. And why don't I introduce you to Robert? And that's how I ended up meeting the the founder of of, of RCI uh, originally back in uh, 1998. Uh, we ended up merging the companies, merged my company and and into RCI. I became vice president of operations, took over day to day operations. He was going to run the public company side, do acquisitions and 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 new clubs. Uh, that lasted for about six months. Uh, the two A type personalities, uh, so. You know, we, we were we were starting to clash. Uh, so in March of 1999, I, I bought him out uh, and sold him our New Orleans location. So he kept the one single club and I took over the rest of RCI. I think at the time we were doing about uh, seven million in revenue, maybe. Uh, so uh, built a club in San Antonio, reopened a Houston club. Uh, just kept basically growing the company, uh, got into the internet, uh, adult website market in 99, early 2000, uh, got back out of that in about 2002, uh, really started focusing on the club side of things again, uh, built a few more clubs. And then, uh, by 2012 made a major acquisition. We'd bought 11 locations in a single transaction. Uh, we had made some smaller acquisitions prior to that, but that was a 40, I think a $42 million acquisition at the time, which is one of the largest acquisitions in, in industry history uh, in 2012. And then, uh, of course, kept doing 2000 and, uh, well, 2007, we bought Tootsie's. I guess that's the real real turning point was when we bought Tootsie's Cabaret for $25 million in in Miami, which was probably one of the largest single club purchase prices uh in the industry but it was a no-brainer for us it was doing uh, about 8.8 .8 million in ebitda so it was a little under three times ebitda for us uh we our stock when we made the announcement the stock went on a nice run up to about 16 dollars. we were able to raise the the money through equity at about 14 dollars a share to, to take out the down payment uh we took what, 10 million dollars in owner financing on that 15 million dollars cash down and, uh, you know, that was kind of the turning point for the stock. In 2008, the stock, uh, we had passed Playboy and market cap for a brief period of time. 
uh, of course, then the 2009 uh, mortgage crisis or financial crisis hit. Uh, we had just purchased two weeks before Lehman Brothers filed bankruptcy, uh, $18.9 million acquisition in Las Vegas uh, that we ended up closing in April of 2010. Uh, and then, of course, made the big acquisition in 12, uh, continued to grow through 21. We did the uh, $88 million acquisition of uh, VCG Holdings, which, uh, and then uh, this recent acquisition, a $66.5 million acquisition, we just passed, closed this past March. We instead about 70 locations uh, in 13 states right now. Okay. So you've been in the industry for what, 30 some years now? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, 89. So 11 and 23. So yeah, 34 right. years. How has, has, has the business changed since you first got in it? Like, do, is there anything you need today as an operator that is different from what you needed when you sure. started? You know, I mean, in, in the 1989, early 90s, it was a lot of biker bars. Uh, government regulations really started uh, affecting the industry uh, through 97, 98. Uh, and so things really started changing, became more corporate, I think. Uh, uh, a lot of the bad operators, uh, the new regulations and background checks and those types of things that were required to get an adult license uh, really changed the industry a lot. At the same time, uh, you know, Rick's being public. VCC Holdings went public. Uh, I think Million Dollar Saloon was public. So the, the industry was experimenting with public markets, very similar to the casino, early days of the casinos, which was corporatizing things a little bit. Uh, you know, best practices came out. Uh, I, I, you know, hate to say it, but the, the, the iPhone really has changed. One big, big, one of the biggest changes for the industry, I think, to the better is that everything's on video now, right? I mean, everything's on video. So, uh, you know, the, the security systems in the club, the cash handling systems in the clubs, uh, you know, basically mimicking the casinos in that regard, everything started beginning, becoming more affordable. Uh, so it became very affordable to have camera systems and security systems and, uh, you know, computers and, and, and software tracking and inventory tracking because uh, it was a very cash intense business. Uh, in the beginning. And today it's a very credit card intense business, right? I mean, I think most people under 30 years old don't have $20 cash in their pocket, right? It's all credit cards. Uh, and as our, as our demographic is switching, as we've went from being a more traditional strip club where you go sit down in the corner for three hours and, uh, you know, Susie comes over and gives you some lap dances and you have a few drinks together and you go tip her on stage. And, but basically you're not out of your chair unless you're going to the bathroom or you're going to tip her on stage. Those days are kind of changing in the new generation. Uh, it's a lot more females in the clubs now. So uh, especially on the weekends, you see 30, 40% of our customer base is female. Uh, it's uh, it's a meet and greet place. People will come there. They'll have a few drinks. Uh, they'll meet each other. Uh, so they don't stay at the same table, though. There's a lot more walking around in the club now, more like a nightclub scene. So uh, the music's changed. The light shows have changed where we've become uh, as much of a nightclub as a strip club. So more of a nightclub with strippers as I as, as how I kind of define it. We've got stages and the girls are dancing and there's intertops dancing. But most of your uh, adult entertainment is now done on VIP floors where your main floor stays more of a, of a nightclub, uh, higher energy. And uh 
So it's it's drastically changed, I would say, in the in the, in the thirty years from the original, you know, biker bars uh, that I started out in. That yeah, that's some fantastic context. Now I have two questions that I think relate really well together. Is one, what are the unit economics like on a nightclub? And then second, when you're looking at acquisitions, what metrics or numbers do you care about? Sure. Well. <clears throat> when you try to do average unit volumes in the in the adult industry, it's tough because we have clubs in Abilene, Texas, and Longview, Texas that uh, you know they'll do ten thousand dollars a week, and then you have Tootsie's in Miami that will do you know uh, two hundred and forty thousand dollars Friday or Saturday night, uh, and you know does forty million dollars annually. So it's hard to do unit economics. It's really going to vary on what market you're in, size of the club. Uh, whether it's a big metropolitan area, how much competition's in that area, so that's very difficult, uh, and and of course restrictions on operations. For example, in Miami, it's totally nude, it's full contact friction dancing, and it's eighteen hours a day of liquor sales. Uh, where you get into some small community where you can only have liquor sales till one o'clock. The girl has to dance on a on a on a pedestal that's at least eight eight to twelve inches off the ground. Uh, you know, there's very little contact or touching at all in those markets uh so it's it's there's a lot of uh a lot of variances between the two uh for, as far as acquisitions go what we look for uh is i look for grandfathered licenses uh limited competition uh availability you know for anyone to come in and open and compete with us once we once we purchase it uh and we look at you know depending on how much competition, how secure that license is from a legal standpoint, whether it's a court-ordered license, whether it's a, you know, a, a, uh, basically this, it meets all the requirements of the city, but the city could try to change something later or not. Depends on whether we look at a three times multiple or a five times multiple of, uh, of EBITDA uh, when we look at purchasing these. And whether we can pick up the real estate as well. We, we like to own the real estate because the license is tied to that real estate and can't be moved anyplace else. You know, if you go open up a, a, a McDonald's and you know your rent goes up or something happens, you can move down the street pretty pretty easily. Where with an adult license, those licenses can't be moved. It's tied to that particular piece of property, you know, basically for eternity. It can't it can't be transferred. It can't be moved. Uh, so owning that property is a very distinct competitive advantage. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. What so? What's the process like from? you guys end where you say, okay, you've identified a spot where you want to potentially open a location. How long does it take from that point to, okay, we're fully operational and what are the steps in between it? I mean, I'm guessing there's a bunch of regulatory hurdles. I mean, we haven't really built a new location from the ground up. We're building one in Lubbock, Texas right now. Uh, basically, we had to go buy five acres in the middle of a cotton field right along a highway because that's the only place that was both economically viable and legal to operate in. Our existing location we had up there got taken by the uh, Texas Department of Transportation for highway expansion. Uh, that's going to be the first one we built in, oh gosh, for a long, long time. Uh, typically what we do is we go and buy an existing one and either we'll, we'll own, buy the property and either tear the building down or remodel the building, depending on you know what the laws allow us to do. Uh, and rarely we're even doing that. Basically, I would say 90, 95% of all of our new acquisitions are operating clubs. We're going to buy an existing operation. We're buying their EBITDA. So we have immediate cash flow. 
Uh, and I think that's kind of been the success story for us is, as we've done these larger acquisitions, uh, you know, EBITDA jumps $14 million in a single year, or, you know, $11 million in a single year. And then you take the acquisition we did in 21, we bought based on a $14 uh, million dollar, uh, trailing EBITDA and uh, our trailing 12 months through June 30th is about 17.3. So we're able to increase that 14 by $3.3 million or take our five times multiple and knock it down to just over four times. What are some of the, so let's say you buy an operating club, it's already running. What are some of the changes that you make operationally that uh, allow you to generate that better return? Physical plan operator changes would be POS system, uh, upgrades to security systems, you know, maximizing storage capabilities uh, so that we have, you know, if something happens today, we may not get sued for up to two years. So we try to have, you know, as long the video recording as long as we can. Now, certain high traffic areas, uh, you know, you're only getting three to six months out of. Uh, but, you know, we try to have as much video storage as we can. Uh, inventory control systems, uh, basically, you know, with POS and inventory control system, it's about stopping all the shrinkage. Uh, you know, camera system installed on all cash handling and credit card transaction locations. Excuse me. Any any place uh, in the building we consider a security risk, we'll have, you know, camera systems so we can see what goes on, especially high traffic areas uh, where incidences could, you know, could could break out. Well, those, those will all be recorded. Uh then the number one thing I think we have to do after we get the plant physical plant there is we have to install our culture. Uh, we have a, I think a very unique culture for our industry. Uh, our guys are very, uh, especially in this day and age, not just for our industry, but for anything, uh, very uh, company oriented people. Uh, you know, one of our first things uh, that, that we, that we teach people is do the right thing. Uh, and the do the right thing means, to do the right thing for all parties involved, not what's best for the company, not what's best for you individually, not what's best for the other party or the third party individually, but what's best for everyone combined. Uh, maybe everyone's not happy, but that's the best. That was the best approach to to a solution or a best solution to a problem. Uh, and so we want to ingrain that into our people, and we want to ingrain uh, that uh, that we're all people. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, Clubs may consider their entertainers their product. We do not. Our entertainers are part of our family. Uh, we're not going to put up with a guest that disrespects an entertainer. His money is not more important than than, than that entertainer. Uh, and those are the kind of things that uh, we really want to instill in our in our management staff. Uh, you know, from the top down and from the bottom up, everybody understands. Uh, you know what our culture is. So if I can sum things up and correct me if I'm wrong, the two big things from outside of the, you know, the culture stuff that you just talked about that attracts right. you to this business from a, you know, economic perspective is one, the low valuations, given that not a lot of people are targeting these things. And two, the limited availability where you're not going to be worried about one just popping up right next door, you know, overnight. Is that two of the main reasons? What, what right. That's you what gives us business? the comfort in making, you know, acquisitions that, are, you know, when you're talking about multi-million dollar investments. Uh, in an industry where there's, like you said, there's, if we want to sell today, I don't know who we would sell to, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're the preferred buyer. We're the ones with the cash. I mean, we're coming up with 25, 35, you know, $50 million down payments. Uh, we're the only player in the market that I know of 
that has ex, ex, excuse me, access to that much capital uh, to do these acquisitions with. Uh, and I think that makes us the preferred buyer. We also have a track record for the owner finance portions. We've always made all of our payments. We do have bank financing for real estate now, which uh, we didn't have until about 2017, which has been a major uh, change for us because our average interest rates were a little over 9% uh, weighted uh, prior to 2017. And today they're about six and a quarter percent, maybe on about 220 million in debt. Wow. So that's nice. Yeah. Chit Chat Money is brought to you by Interactive Brokers, but we like to call them by their ticker symbol, IBKR. Designed for active traders and sophisticated investors, Interactive Brokers offers trading assets in 150 markets with 27 different currencies, charges USD margin loan rates from 5.83% to 6.83%, rated the lowest among margin fees, the ability to trade stocks, bonds, options, futures, commodities, and more with high interest rates paid on instantly available cash balances, and the ability to lend your eligible stock shares to earn passive income, all on one single unified platform. Restrictions may apply. For more information, visit ibkr.com, member SIPC. Open an account with IBKR today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. One, maybe to transition to another topic I think investors will be interested in is the bombshells concept. So why did you start that? And how are these different than your traditional clubs? Yeah. Well, I mean, we were sitting on a ton of cash back, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, there wasn't really anything acquisition wise and we couldn't keep our growth steady. And so I said, well, let's come up with something that will appeal to a broader audience. Uh, as well as stick to our core competencies, you know, entertainment, female entertainment that sells alcohol. Uh, you know, we, we have food at our club. So the food component wasn't, wasn't that different for us, but, uh, but it was different. We did have a, we did have a learning curve there. Uh, but we want to be able to build something. These, some, these are things we can build from the ground up. Uh, you know, we can remodel existing buildings, uh, but we can control the growth level. So if I want to open three stores a year, I can easily open three stores a year. If I want to open up 10 stores a year, obviously it's more challenging, but but I can, where I can't guarantee when I'm going to make my next acquisition, right? Because I'm relying on somebody else to sell me their 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 property. And I want to, I mean, I, I could guarantee if I wanted to pay any price, but I want to, you know, pay a reasonable price and and grow at a at a reasonable uh at a reasonable rate at the same time. What are some of the challenges about operating the bombshells locations versus the traditional clubs? What's What are some of the differences there? Well, everything was pretty steady for a while. COVID kind of changed everything for us. Uh, you know, we'd opened up six stores in the 18 months prior to COVID. One store had been open, I think, seven weeks before it got closed down uh, for COVID. Uh, as we came out the other side, we sued. We were the first ones open. Uh, we had full 3,000 square foot kitchens, full service restaurants. Uh, but the state was trying to say we were a bar because we had full bar services as well. 
And so we ended up suing. We ended up winning that lawsuit. We got open. All the bars stayed closed, but we were open. And so prior to reopening from COVID, we would have a guy come in, you get a burger, 1250 and two beers at 625 and we were 50-50 alcohol food sales. Okay. Post-COVID, the bars were closed. So the guy would come in and buy his burger. He'd have his two beers. He would normally leave, go to a bar and have his four shots of tequila. Instead, he stayed at our place and had four shots of tequila. And now we're running 85% liquor sales. Our margins went from our typical 18 to 22% range that we shoot for to 28, 32. We had, we had certain stores that were running 36 and 38% margins. And so they, you know, the margins went up, the revenues went up, the earnings went up. And, you know, at one point people were saying, oh, bombshells is worth more than the entire company. You know, they're worth more than strip clubs. And, you know, if you go back and listen to the conference calls, you'll hear me say it's not sustainable. Right. We no way this is when the bars open up, that liquor sales are going to leave and they're going to go someplace else. They're 80 percent margin. So, of course, we're killing it right now, but we can't do that forever. Uh, You know, I understand that eventually we're going to have competition at that level again. And so. That's what's happened to us in the last, you know, 24 months, basically, is all those places of reopening. Then all the restaurants, you know, what like what they say, 30 or 40 percent of all mom pop restaurants went out of business completely. So you had all this real estate that was sitting empty. And those customers that used to eat there were now eating at our places because we're the only places, you know, the, new, the rest of the places that were open there. But then in 23, all those places reopened now. And so they're all in their honeymoon periods because when a new restaurant opens, everybody goes there. So they're not only taking back the business that we had originally gotten from them, they're taking part of our business as well because they're running their honeymoon period. Uh, I think in 24, that'll that'll level out. Uh, based, on, based on the historic numbers and watching how things happen, I think about mid-November is when our comps get easier, both at the nightclubs and at the bombshells, because that's kind of when it started falling off last year, uh, about a year ago, this uh, about mid-November. And so, you know, we'll, we'll watch through that. And I think we'll get back to more realistic. Uh, I think we're down 9.9% same source sales uh, in this, in this past quarter that we announced uh, October 10th. Uh, and I'm hoping we'll get back to our more normalized about 3% average growth. Sometimes it's down three, sometimes it's up six, but you know, basically it's uh, it just runs about average of about 3% a year. I think we'll get back to that uh, hopefully by uh, second quarter of, uh, of 24. All right, yeah, that's that's great context. Now, for the bombshells concept, what is your long-term growth strategy? Maybe share as much as you want. Well, I mean, our long-term growth strategy would be to, to have the franchising model work for us. Uh, we had a franchisee; they ended up losing their operator. He got divorced, and the money guys didn't want to buy it, didn't want to run the store. So we ended up buying it from them. So we that's now a company store. Uh, our next franchisee. Uh, we're waiting for building permits in Huntsville, Alabama. Hopefully they will uh, get those. We'll open up towards the end of fiscal 24. Uh, so we'll have another franchisee going. We'll see. Hopefully they'll be a much better. Uh, it, they, there's not a bunch of partners in it. It's a single guy. He's he's a good operator. I think he'll he'll do well. Uh, it's his money and, and that he's going to be investing in it. So he'll be uh, much more inclined as the operator to make it work. Uh, we're also going to build three stores of our three company stores a year for this year and next year, uh, for 24, 25, those units are already, we already own the real estate under all those units, uh, in various phases of, uh, permitting or plan drawing, you know, those types of things. So, uh, 
we're pretty set in that regard. Uh, and that we've just got to get our margins back. We've got to work very diligently. Uh, I'm getting much more involved than I have in the past uh, with the bombshells concept right now because I've got to get the margins back to that 18 to 22%. Uh, and if we can't, then we've got to, you know, explore what we're going to, what changes we're going to make, uh, you know, to the concept to, uh, till we get back to those margins. Do you go and like reach out to find people like franchisees or do they kind of come to you? It's a little bit of both. I mean, you, you know, there's, there's some websites and stuff you can market on. Uh, we, you know, we have a franchising website up, uh, as well. Uh, we'll do ads every now and then. Of course we get news stories written on us. When we open up new stores, we get a lot of news stories and we'll get a lot of coverage. And sometimes we'll have people reach out to us. Uh, we're in Denver, for example, we're starting, we're, we're not doing ground up builds in Denver. We're going to actually, there's a lot of empty restaurant space out here right now. And so we're going to try to do remodels uh, and try to make it a much cheaper uh, build because our typical builds right now are between six and $7 million. So that's for a franchise, for a new franchisee, that's a pretty, pretty big investment. Uh, we believe that with the, uh, remodel deal, we can bring that down to about $2 million a unit. Uh, and I think if we can bring it down to $2 million a unit and we can do the same comp numbers that we're doing with new stores when we build ground up, uh, it'll be very highly, very successful for us. And I think our franchising will will kick off at that point. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a better idea of that in probably about another six months, how this Denver store right. does. Yep. Now, I'm curious your answer here because the regulation in the industry and how it's just a lot of it's it's much different than, say, advertising a, I don't know, tied laundry detergent. What is your guys's marketing strategy or are you restricted from doing a lot of stuff uh, that you might uh, want to do? If you're talking for the strip clubs, it's all social media. Uh, okay. We do very I mean, we do some radio. We have some billboards in certain markets. Uh, but the majority of our marketing nowadays is social media, whether it's our entertainers on TikTok, Instagram, uh, our own, you know, company, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter or X now, uh, you know, but a lot of social media and we'll buy keywords and we'll, uh, you know, create uh, we have some great uh, partners that do uh, packages that sell, you know, bachelor party packages or party night packages. Uh, and they do a lot of marketing for their, for their business, which then around and brings people into our clubs because they sell our packages. Okay. And in the, uh, I think it was the interview you did with Ricky. Uh, he, you mentioned the story that I forget what year it was, but a group of bankers came to you with a pitch deck to do nothing. That was like yep. the whole pitch. Yeah. That was uh 2015, right at the end of fiscal 2015. I had just fired all of my bankers, uh, the investment banking firm, our financial advisors from Montgomery Street Research out of San Francisco, and uh, because they were pressuring me into doing a capital raise that I didn't need uh, to buy a club that I couldn't buy because I found fraud in their financials, didn't realize it was money laundering until they were all arrested about 18 months later, but I knew something wasn't right, and it just made no sense. We back out of the transaction. They were losing all the banking fees. Uh, they were really upset with me. We got into a big, you know, basically screaming match. Uh, and I said, y'all are fired. I'm done with you guys. Uh, and so we had no financial advisor. The stock drifted. 
down to about, uh, I think around $6 a share, maybe even a little less. And a group from California came out. They had purchased about 2% of the company at the time. And they said, look, we've got this presentation we want to give you. We want to sit down and talk with you. If you will at least, you know, look at this and and if you decide you'll do this, we're going to buy 5% of your company. And I said, well, I can't hurt, you know. Can't hurt to sit down and talk. So uh, they came in. They they literally handed me a proposal on the front page. Said the do nothing proposal. And I turned the page over. It says you should do nothing. Buy no clubs. Do not you know no expansion. No you know no no nothing. All you no more restaurants. No nothing. All you should do is buy your own stock back until your free cash flow yield is below. 10%. And right there, currently your free cash flow yield is like 24.7% or something like that. And so, and they, you know, and they, of course they gave me uh, a copy of the book, the, the outsiders. And I said, Oh, let me look at this. Uh, and I thought, man, this is a great deal. I, I, I can make 24% on our cash. And all I have to do is make one phone call every Monday. I'm going on vacation. You know, see you guys. Uh, and so I, I call, I literally call Monday morning. How much cash do we have? $600,000. Okay. Call the broker, buy $600,000 worth of our stock this week. Next Monday, call the office. How much cash do we have? Uh, but I really started doing is, as I, as I, you know, studied the outsiders a little bit. And as I really started understanding capital allocation better, we said, well, we got this deal we can do. That will, you know, we think the return is going to be 60% in the first year. We're like, well, okay, so that's when we started. We developed the hurdle rate. So we need a hurdle rate. If we're going to take on any risk, we want to make three times whatever our free cash flow yield is. So today, I think our free cash flow yield is probably around uh, at $55, probably around 12% or something. So if I'm going to do something, I want 36% cash on cash return. It's kind of a minimum, you know, I got to make my, all my cash has got to be come back to me in less than three years. Or I don't want to make, why make the cash investment? I'll just buy my existing assets. Uh, and so as we, you know, as we started really working on that, developing that, uh, I said, okay. So if you look in 2017, it's the only year since I took over as CEO in 1999 that our revenues declined. We had a single year decline. It wasn't much, but it was a single year decline. And it's because that was the year we applied the capital allocation strategy to all of our existing assets. And we had a property that was worth $3.4 million. And we were making $180,000 a year out of the club. I'm like, why are we have $3.4 million tied up? And we had we owned it free and clear. There was no bank loan against it. There was nothing. And we'd had, we'd had a group that had been, been trying to buy it from us. And so I called up that group. I said, do you really want this property? They're like, yes. We're like, okay, can you close in 30 days? They said, yes, we closed the club. We closed it to, we sold it to them in 30 days. We took the $3.4 million, applied it to our capital allocation strategy, right? So that 3.4 million was making us what, 4%, 4.5%. You know, if we just bought back our stock, I think our yield was still at that time in the in the 14 or 15% range. So, I mean, we could just take the 3 million, buy back $3 million of the stock. Uh, if you look since 2015, fully diluted, we were at 10,860,000 shares or something like that, I think. In 2015, when we had adopted the, the do nothing plan or capital allocation strategies, we call it today. Uh, today, we have 9.3 million in change outstanding. 
And we issued 700,000 shares in the last three years, two years, uh, 500,000 at $60 a share and 200,000 at $80 a share. And we bought back over 250,000 of the 500,000 at under $60, which is under issue price. And now we're buying the $80 stock back that we just reissued at, you know, I think we bought as low as $52, uh, but basically we've been buying it down from about uh, $68 down to $52. And, uh, you know, we just basically, uh, as we say out there, we buy about $100,000 worth. Uh, every every day we buy, we buy $100,000 worth. Uh, when it's under 60, I try to buy every single day. Uh, I have to send an order in every day. So sometimes I'm busy. I, I may forget, but but basically we're buying every day. You mentioned the outsiders there. Yes. Are there any other CEOs or operators that you kind of model after or, or look up to? Well, I always joke with all my uh, IR people and everything that I'm going to find my inner Henry Singleton and fire everybody <laughs> and just run the company and not deal with investors and not deal with with, with IR people and not deal with everybody. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think that worked well before social media, but in the day of social media, in the day of instant information, I think if you went dark like that, your stock would be non-existent. Nobody would even know you exist, uh, even in the strip club business. Uh, forget about it if you're in any other business. Uh, so I think, we, you know, it's very important uh, that we have, uh, you know, different outreaches. But I'm trying to use uh, the least, ex the, the, you know, the least expensive methods I can use. We moved our conference calls to Twitter. We used to have 50 to 60 people on a conference call. If we had a blowout quarter, we might get 100, 115 people on a conference call. If we have a horrible quarter, we're doing 2,500 to 4,500 people on those conference calls. Uh, you know, we I think our record's about 6,500. But then, the, then, of course, it gets replayed for the next, what, 60 or 90 days or whatever. And 15, 20, 25,000 people listen to that conference call now. Uh, and we were paying thousands of dollars to use the traditional conference call recordings and let people call in and listen to recordings. And X cost me, I think, $11 a month, right? Uh, and actually, I have I am actually monetized on X, so they're actually paying me now. Uh, so, you know, how do you, how do you beat, how do you beat that from an, you know, from a company standpoint for investor relations? I don't know why every company's not on, on, on social media or on X doing their conference calls, doing their, you know, their, their investor relations all through, all through social media. I meet so many of our investors. Uh, I mean, from guys that own 10 shares or, you know, or guys that own a share and a half in their Robin Hood account that come down to the club. So not only do I make them investors, I also make them customers of our business or guests of our business as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, to, you know, investors that, you know, would never reach out to me before that, oh, I own 100,000 shares of your stock. I'm like, and I'll look up, you know, I'll pull the Nobles list or I'll pull the 13 F's. I'm like, oh, they own 100,000 shares of our stock. How you doing? <laughs> you know, but I treat everybody the same. If you own 100,000 shares or, or, or a share and a half, you know, I'm, I've been pretty open to. Uh, you know, I'll answer questions uh, on X. Uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, some stuff I can't answer, obviously, right? Uh, you guys ask questions about future stuff. And, you know, I'll give my opinion sometimes, but I'm very, I try to be very careful. Uh, you know, I don't want to end up in any issues with the SEC or, uh, you know, have my lawyers calling screaming at me about what I put out there. Other than my dating stuff, they do call and scream about that. But it's the engagement. They just, if you, to understand, how x works it's 
it's incredible once you figure it out and you, once you start building that following, that follower base, you know, somebody said, Oh, when I first started there, Oh, you're trying to build a meme stock. And I'm like, no, I don't want a meme stock. Meme stocks run through the roof and then crash. And then they have that little cult following that's going to be with them forever. I said, I'm going to build the cult following from the, from the get go. Right. I want it. Yeah. I want you to, if you want people to sell my stock, you got to, you got to, brainwash and deprogram them, you know, cause they're, you know, we're going to, we're going to be honest. We're going to be upfront. We're going to tell them what we're doing and we're going to, we're going to make believers, right? Long-term believers. Cause really investing should be a long-term game. It shouldn't be a, you know, it shouldn't be a slot machine. Right. And, and I think a lot of investors today use the market as a slot machine. They're day trading They're you know, they're, they, they, they buy something, it goes down, they hold it forever. They buy something that goes up and they sell it. It's exact opposite of what they should be doing, right? Get put a stop loss in, get lot, get out of your losses, and you know, start investing in stuff that, that that you're making money on. Or, you know, do like Warren Buffett does: buy a good company, buy that cash flow at a at a at a, at a discounted price, and just hold it forever. And don't worry about what the stock trades at. If the stock trades down, you buy you just buy more of it. Uh, and you know, don't pay, don't pay taxes or if you have it in IRAs, you could trade a little bit, I guess. But most people, if you're trying to time the market, you're going to miss, you're going to miss the tops. You're going to miss the bottoms. You're better off just cost averaging. I mean, everything that, that I see out there, the, the most successful, uh, you know, individual investors, retail investors are the ones that sit there and dollar cost average in and, and, and hold for long periods of time. And that's what I want to create. You know, I keep telling everybody, uh, that invest with us, give us three years. You know, don't don't look at me over six months or nine months or or, or eighteen months. Every thirty six months, come back and reevaluate what you put in and, and where you're at. Uh, and I think you'll 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 end up being happy. You go back three years from us right now. You go back to twenty twenty. You know, I mean, I think our stock was six dollars during COVID, right? So uh, it's pretty easy. But even if you go back to two thousand nineteen, you know, our stock was about twenty five dollars, I think, at, at the highs. Uh, and we're we're you know our lows are fifty two. Uh, so, uh, you know, over a long period of time, we've done very well. If you run a 10 year on us, uh, or if you run a, since 2015, I tell everybody anything before 2015, we were a different company. We had a different business model. We had a different cap allocation strategy. Well, we didn't have a cap allocation strategy. What we really had, we had a buy revenue, buy revenue, buy revenue, and, and then try to turn it into income where now I, I could care less what the revenue is. All I care about is how much income am I going to get? What's my cash on cash returns? And how am I growing my free cash flow per share? And I want to grow that at a 10 to 15% annual clip. Uh, through last year, we were at, on uh, a five-year run rate, we were at 20%, even through COVID. So we we're a little ahead of our goal. I think this year, 2023 is probably going to be the first year we're probably a little off on our free cash flow per share growth. Uh, and hopefully we'll, you know, we'll make up for it in 24. But I, like I said, if you look over three, any three-year period, I don't think you'll find a three-year period where we haven't grown that free cash flow per share at at least 10%. And typically it's much better than that. So we got some questions kind of, we, we got some questions when we posted that we're going to have you on the show. And sure. I, I want to kind of rephrase one of them, which okay. is around your shareholder base. And let's say the, the stock multiple, would you rather have your stock trade at a 25% free cash flow yield or a, I don't know, call it 4% free cash flow yield. Like, cause you know, you've talked about wanting to, you know, if it's at 25%, you can create a this lot is, of value. This is, this is, this is one of the, this is a great question. And 
I'll, I'll give you my answer. Have you ever watched the movie Big Daddy? And you remember the little boy was playing cards with the delivery boy and he, he passed out five cards and he'd take his five cards and he'd turn them over and say, I win. And the little boy, what are we playing? He goes, we're playing I win. In that scenario, I win either way, right? And our long-term shareholders win either way. If it's a 25% yield, we're going to buy back stock, right? So the, anybody that's holding long-term is going to get that gain, right? The free cash flow per share yield is going to start growing 25% because we're just using the free cash flow and investing in a 25% free cash flow yield because we know what our existing assets are. If it's a 4% yield, now we're going to buy stuff at five times where we're trading at 25 times. So we're going to be able to go in there and really make unbelievable deals, which would be great for our long-term shareholders. So I always say, you know, I win, I win, I win. That's what we're playing, right? And Or, or we win is really what it is because it's, it's long-term shareholder win. Uh, and I just look at myself as another shareholder. Uh, and so both of us, the only time it hurts us to be a publicly traded company is when we're 100% fairly valued or not off enough that we can take advantage of it one way or the other, right? But if we can take advantage of both of those yields, I mean, those both those yields are great opportunities for us to take advantage of. The problem we had from 1999 through 2015 is A, we didn't measure it, and B, we rarely took advantage of either side of it. Because if you don't measure it, you don't know what it is and you don't know when you take advantage. And sometimes we issued equity at the absolute worst times, right? Our, our free cash flow yield was 25%. We're buying something at five times and uh, you know we're issuing equity on it. So we're, we're trading at four times and we're buying stuff at five. That's not a very good, and we're using paper. It's not very good for our you know, our long-term shareholders. Uh, and, and, and we were punished for it and we didn't understand why, because, you know, look, we'll be honest. I, I, when I started in the business, I was, I was a strip club operator. Uh, I had to learn to become a public company operator. I had to learn to be a CEO. Uh, it was never my goal to be the CEO. I was an operations guy. I lived in the clubs 17 hours a day, six days a week and nine hours on Sunday. And if I took off two days in a month, you know, people thought I was sick. <laughs> Something was wrong with him. What's wrong? Well, he doesn't go on vacation. Uh, you know, and so uh, switching to a, to, to a corporate uh, role was, uh, was, was, was a big change for me uh, as, as happened. And uh, it took time. And, you know, I thought I hired, you know, smart financial advisors and smart people because, you know, I was told by everybody, these are the smart guys you need to hire. And, and they were kind of, I mean, they're, they're definitely smart guys, but their interests weren't aligned with mine and they weren't aligned with my shareholders. And I want my interests and my shareholders' interests completely aligned. That's why I own so much of the stock. I, I haven't sold any of it. Uh, I've had plenty of opportunities. I mean, I, could, I, I should have sold some in 2008. Uh, I, you know, I had financial advisors that told me, you know, you should sell. When the stock went to in the 90s this past January, you know, I was being told hey, you can sell 90,000 shares. You need to sell 90,000 shares at 90 bucks take 8 million off the table, you know? Uh, and I said, look, I, I, I'm, I'm a long-term shareholder. I don't care about this temporary. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to pay a bunch of tax on it. Now I got to earn 20% back before I can even get even. I said, I, I, I'll, I'll sell in, you know, 15 years or something, or I'll never sell. Just go into a family trust. We'll increase the dividend to the point where, and I'm making enough in dividends that'll run to the family trust and, and flow out that way. Uh, or we'll just keep buying back stock and, you know, who knows, someday I may be the only shareholder. 
left because the, the stock just, you know, we never get the market valuation we should get. Uh, but I felt, I, I don't think that, I mean, we've had some great market valuations many times in the past. Uh, it's just, we get momentum guys in there. They run the valuation up. And then as soon as that momentum stops, they dump and there's not enough, you know, what I consider long-term shareholders that can buy enough of it to, to hold the value. And so it goes back down till the deep value guys jump back in, right? Which is what I think we're seeing right now. It's, and I, I kind of thought the deep value guys would jump in at 48, uh, but I think everybody knows the last time it went down to $48, I bought $3 million worth of stock in a week. And the next, the next week I was buying 3 million more. I was trying to buy 5 million, but we, you know, the volume was so low, we could only get three. And the next week it went to $55 again. Uh, and so I think people, you know, the market kind of started coming back a little bit two days ago. And I think people just jumped in early and we may get another shot at it. You know, who knows? Uh, you know, we're sitting on about 26 million in cash right now. Stock goes under 50. We'll probably buy a hundred thousand shares and try to buy a hundred thousand shares in that first week. It's under, uh, because we just issued it at 80. So we might as well buy it back at 50. Uh, and if it stays down there, we might try to buy another 5 million over the next week or two. Uh, we, we're free cash flowing over a million a week right now. Uh, so even if we, you know, if we bought 5 million, it's only 4 million of our, of our reserves. We drop down to 22. We could buy another 4 million the next week, drop it down to 18. 18 is kind of my, my minimum comfort zone. We could probably operate in at, at 14 to 15 million cash on hand. Uh, but I'd like to stay, you know, I'd like to stay around 18 million cash on hand. So we'd have to start thinking about it. If the stock dropped to 40, we would probably, we've got a, a lot of real estate equity. Uh, we're actually in the process of cashing out a bunch of that right now to pull in about 25 to 30 million in cash. Uh, uh, we started that process, uh, I guess, about 10 days ago when the stock was really looked like it was just falling every single day, a dollar, two dollars. And, you know, we were getting long-term shareholders calling saying this stock's going to 40, it's going to 35. It's going, you know, our, our model say you're going to, you can see 32. And I was like, we need 30 million in cash now because <laughs> if it drops under 40 bucks, you know, let's buy back 750,000 shares of stock. You know, let's, let's buy 9% or 8% of the company. If it drops to 30, maybe we get 11%. Who knows? Uh, you know, I mean, why would we, we not, we know the underlying assets are not changing. Sure. The, the you know, the, the same store sales are down a little bit, but we were still up 5% overall. Yeah. We made a major acquisition. I was really hoping to be up about 15%. Uh, but I think we will be, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of time when things will, you know, revolve back around. And, uh, if not, we'll, we'll lower costs, uh, we'll, we'll figure out, uh, ways to, we, we, you know, even last quarter with, with down 9.9% .9 same source sales, you know, our target is 30% EBITDA, 20% free cash flow yield are, you know, and we are margins and we did 29.8 and I think 19.9 or something like that. So we were still right on, even with the same store sales declines. We'll see how this quarter, uh, you know, through September 30th, we'll, I'll start getting that data probably in about three more weeks. Uh, we'll get out to the market on uh, December 14th. Uh, and by then we'll have, you know, 10 weeks or nine and a half weeks of, of this quarter. And so we'll kind of have a pretty good idea of what it's going to be looking like for that uh, sales release in January and then earnings in February. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll, at that point, uh, I think we're going to be in a much better position. Hopefully we'll know more about the casino licensing, uh, the investigations going on right now. Uh, we're hoping they're going to wrap that up by December 15th. Except if they can't, then, uh, uh, you know, they may run a little bit into January, depending on what they 
as they if they turn over things and have more questions, it could, you know, or more things they need to investigate. I don't know what it is. We're a publicly traded company. Everything's kind of out there, and everything we, you know, anytime we've done anything, anytime we've been sued, anytime anything's happening in our properties, it's all in it's all in the public, uh, you know, media. So I, I don't I don't know what they could find that would make them take longer. So I'm hoping they can get it all done by December, and then we'll you know hopefully we get open April April May or maybe by the end of March. Uh, I think worst case, we open by the end of July. So, All right. Well, as we get some of our wrap-up questions here, I want to circle back to something you mentioned at the beginning, which is you guys' competitive advantages. And do you believe that RCI has a moat? And if they, if you do, what other advantages over industry players do you have? Uh, well, I mean, we have a moat against the, you know other com- competition altogether, uh, just in that there's no new licensing, you know, there's, there's places you could get licensed, but it's not economically viable. I mean, you know, I'm in Manhattan in Midtown at 33rd and fifth, right next to the empire state building. Uh, and I have two clubs there. And my other club is at sixth and 37th, right. Which is Avenue of America's and 37th street, you know, five blocks from times square. Uh, and, and our other clubs are nine blocks from times square. Uh, Penn station is a block mass square gardens, a block, a block away. Uh, so there's major, you know, New York is competitive advantage. It's unbelievable in Florida. I have, you know, grandfathered licenses and in, in all four jurisdictions are grandfathered licenses. I don't see any major competition coming to compete with any of those, those locations. Uh, you know, Texas is, is, is the same. I own three of the four clubs in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, we're number one in Chicago. We're number one in Pittsburgh, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, Portland, Maine. I mean, we're, when the markets we're in, we're, we're, we're it. Uh, and most of our locations are, are number one. Some of them are number two and number three locations against other competitors. But when you talk about competitive advantage against other operators, our sheer size, uh, our national buying power. I mean, we're able to buy our, our, our liquors at, at, at a discounted prices. We have deals with Coca-Cola. We have, you know, marketing and, 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 uh, we have a company culture where, you know, our guys I mean, have been with us, you know, mo- almost all their professional career, whether it's nine years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Uh, you know, uh, our vice president has been with me 31 years. Our direct operations uh, joined us and joined me in 2003 and has been here 20 years. Right. And hasn't no desire to go anyplace else. Uh, most of the guys have been with us for as long as the, They've worked, they've worked in the industry longer, but we bought the club that they were working at and they're still with us. Uh, so we don't have the turnover. I think that gives us an incredible power. Uh, we have a very corporate structure. We have an ERP system. We have inventory control systems. Uh, and, and just, I think that gives us an advantage that no one else has. Uh, we have a reputation, not only with, you know, uh, sellers of clubs, but with our entertainers with our wait staff, with management throughout the entire industry. Uh, you know, we've won many, many uh, awards, from, you know, that are basically peer rated awards uh, at our, at the, at the gentlemen's club owners expos every year for uh, 25 plus years. Uh, we're, we're involved in uh, ACE national. We're involved in coast which club owners against sex trafficking. We're one of the founding uh, RCI is one of the founders of, of, with, with Coast with, with a bunch of other uh, adult club operators. 
uh, which is, uh, you know, a congressionally recognized uh, training program to stop sex trafficking uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, I think we do a lot of good. I think there's, uh, you know, a lot of uh, attention. We have audited financials. So when, you know, we go into new new jurisdictions and talk with cities and talk stuff, you know, we can show, look, this is the millions of dollars we pay in taxes every year. Uh, we're publicly traded. We're, you know, we're, we've got a good neighbor program. And those things give us a lot of advantage uh, as we move into new markets and, and we make acquisitions and in our existing markets. Uh, you know, when people call and complain about our club, it's not like, oh, that strip club down there. It's, you know, whoever our, you know, maybe it's our corporate liaison, our, our you know, government liaison that we have. They're like, oh, we need to, we need to call Mike. That's, that's, that's an RCI property. We'll call Mike or we need to call Eric or we need to call Ed. They, they know us by name. It's not, you know, we're not that strip club operator. We are RCI or we are, you know, they know our names or they know RCI. Uh, I think that gives us an unbelievable advantage in, you know, stopping any uh, uh, negative impacts against our business uh, that maybe other operators uh, don't have. They don't get involved in, in the local politics uh, and that like we're building the casinos up here. I've been coming to city council meetings up here for over, gosh, what, 17 months now. Uh, so, you know, I know every city council member, I know every man, it's only a town of 770 people. I probably know 500 of the residences up here. Uh, and so, you know, we get involved in our communities or try to be involved in our community as much, but, and that, that is a, I think a huge competitive advantage for us. We don't hide, we roll out the red carpet. If, uh, you know, officers or investigators want to come on our property, you know, we're out the red carpet, come on in. We've got nothing to hide. We're, we're an open book. Uh, and you know, where our competitors may not uh, have that same, uh, philosophy. All right. I think we, we've gone for a while. So I think we're going to wrap up here with our last question. And what we typically do is when we, when we have a deep dive on an individual business, we do a pre-mortem, which is, but we're typically talking to analysts. So I'm going to kind of rephrase the question here as what do you see as the biggest risks to RCI? Is there anything that kind of keeps you up at night? Sure. Uh, obviously the, uh, the labor board and all of their, uh, you know, rulings and changes. Uh, I, our biggest risk is changing legislation, right? The rules change. I can play by the rules and I can win. But when you change the rules and then you make it retroactive on me, how, how does any company deal with that? Uh, and that's one of the things that they tend to get away with in our industry in the beginning. And then we have to go to court and then the courts end up saying, well, you got to do it from here on, but you know they can't go back and penalize you for what you did in the past because it was allowed in the past. Uh, so those are kind of things. That, that's probably our biggest risk is legislation changing or rules changing, the Department of Labor coming in and trying to say, oh, you should have been doing this all along or you should have been doing that all along. Uh, th that's probably our biggest risk. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, the the macro economy is, is, is a risk, uh, uh, but you know, as far as the industry, you know, everybody says, oh, the industry's aging, dying out. The industry's shrinking because we have we had bad operators who didn't corporatize, who didn't pay taxes, who didn't do things, who lost their licenses for various reasons. And nothing to do with whether they were making money or not. It was how they were managing that money. And once those licenses go away, you can't get them back. 
right? So it's not like we can go out and build a whole bunch of new locations and keep growth at, you know, a 6% growth rate, six new, you know, that, that just doesn't happen in our industry. And so I think the, the market misinterprets that part of it. Uh, but that is a risk as, as, as licenses go away or other operators make mistakes and those licenses disappear. It could get to the point because our growth is through acquisition. We could run out of acquisition targets at some time. But to bring in context, there's probably about 2,200 clubs, about 500 meet our criteria, and we own 53 of them or, 50, or 57, I think, 57 clubs right now. So there's still a lot of lot of growth for us. We're about ten, we're barely over ten percent of of what we consider targeted deal. And at some point, we could extend that target, and we'd have to do we'd have to buy clubs we didn't really don't really like, but we'd have to go in and remodel and put a lot of cap capex into them to to make them the right location for us. All right. Well, I think that's all the questions we have, Eric. We really appreciate you joining us. For yeah. anyone that wants to. Uh, get more up to speed on RCI. What do you think is the best place for them to do that? Uh, I mean, probably on X uh, or on our corporate website at rciihh.com uh, in our best, re- best relations site. Uh, there's a lot of information there. Uh, there's a, I mean, you know, Seeking Alpha is one of those, you know, mixed bags. <laughs> there's a lot of good writers on there, a lot of bad writers on there. Uh, I think if you find the right analyst there, of course, our, you know, all, of course, all of our analysts as well. Sadoti, uh, Rob McGuire has a very, uh, a very good understanding of our industry. He spent a lot of time with me. Uh, we've done a lot of site visits, so I think he understands the business very, very well. Uh, so he he writes research on us. So that's that's another good uh, source for you. Uh, but I mean, basically, if you get on X, if you have questions, I I tend to answer. 99% of all the questions that I see on X. And all you have to do is just tag me at at Rick CEO. And I will more than likely uh, pop up my notifications. I'll see and I'll answer. So uh, we're, we're trying to be a different public company and that we're going to try to be very open uh, and very honest. And you're not always going to like what you hear. I mean, you know, when I, when I think things are, are, are rough, I'll say, I think things are rough. You know, like I said, the macro economy is affecting us right now. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say, oh, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. Uh, I, I try to give uh, estimates that are numbered. I, just, I won't call them estimates, but, you know, my opinions of where we're at and where we're going uh, is, is what I truly believe. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it I, like, because I don't care if the stock price is up or down personally. It doesn't. I'm not a seller. Uh, I use that as a gauge of free cash flow yield to decide what's the best way to allocate the company's capital, which is basically our shareholders capital, right? Uh, I look at it every dollar uh, and I and, and I try to invest every dollar based on what I would do if it was all mine, 100% mine, and this is how I would spend it. And I, I do the same thing with shareholders and and I'm pretty frugal for the most part uh, with, 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 with our capital. So uh, I want to keep seeing it grow. I want to grow that free cash flow at that 10 to 15%, you know, compounded rate year after year after year. All right. Well, before we sign off here, we should throw a disclosure on this and remind listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you all next time. 